Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the Miseducation of the SLP. My name is Ingrid. And I'm Ayelet. So happy to be here. We are your hosts for this wonderful and fantastic topic that is our professional environment. <laughs> Trail off there that is our professional environment. Absolutely. So how have you been this week, Miss Ayelet? I have to tell you that um, that imposter syndrome definitely got to me. Uh, this is our first episode recording since we officially launched the podcast. Um, and as I was posting, you know, the links in a couple of different groups and on my Facebook page and trying to get people to join, I kept seeing that two professional speech language pathologists. And I was like, who are they talking about? <laughs> um, so I definitely was like, wow, well, like, who am I, you know, to think that I'm going to be here giving advice out to people and talking about this. So that imposter syndrome really, you know, took me back a little bit. That sounds like such a personal problem. <laughs> I, 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 One that I know you don't have. Definitely a professional. Definitely. I have no qualms about it. It's 12 years to get me here, girl. I, I own every inch of it. So <clears throat> did you yes. get any feedback? I did. Actually, I got the greatest message from Cassie, our um, interviewee from last week. And she wrote it. She she wrote to me and she had listened to the episode and she sent me a message just telling me thank you for telling her story and kind of just told me what a cathartic experience it was for her to have her experience, you know, relayed to others out there and then for us to kind of talk about it and, and validate her feelings, really. Um, and that was kind of great. <laughs> it was kind of great? No, it was, it was really, really great. Um, you know, just kind of really validated what we're doing here for me and you know made us feel like you know maybe maybe this really is something that we you know we know that we need to talk about it but to hear other people say that you know talking about it helped them was great <laughs> well i'm so absolutely understanding of that because most of us in this field that's our whole desire is to help people so anything we can do um that offers that we're definitely on board to facilitate it um so as active members of this profession that's like we can no longer sit and just complain and not do anything we need to find solutions and and come up with ways to progress us Talking about it is probably the first place to begin in a very out loud public forum so that it's not just in secret pages that nobody else knows anything about. Yes, absolutely. And what about you? Have you been getting any feedback? I have been doing several interviews. I spend my time doing interviews. That's a, a majority of how I continue to move the content forward. I've also been working, obviously, in the backdrop making sure that everything is moving forward with our recording um, progress and our marketing and publishing, because all those things are gloriously involved in generating a podcast. So, um, you know, fortunate and unfortunately, 
um, that is where my energy kind of goes. I do recognize that um, the people I've shared it with um, feel a sense of excitement about it. The follow through on whether or not they listen and, you know, subscribe, participate, engage. That's the part that I'm still not very clear on, but I'm hoping it'll get there at some point. So we'll see. Yes, please, 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 please. If you're out there listening, subscribe, hit like and subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts. It really, really helps us to get this off the ground. Look at her. She's beggar. Y'all. Plug, 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 plug. You got to keep doing it. Uh, I did have some other feedback that you'll really appreciate, Ingrid, since you're the uh, uh, editing side of this. My best friend listened to it and said, how in the world did I find a place in my house that was quiet enough to report to record a, a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I have followed you on your social media and those boys, my goodness. (laughs) Yes, for those of you who don't know me personally, I have a five-year-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old, and they don't stop moving, talking, screaming, yelling, shouting, running, jumping, climbing, ever. (laughs) It is not for me. I am not built for that. That I do not have the capacity for that. I admire it. And I think she ha- you have pets, right, Ayala, on top of that? Yes, I have two dogs. I have a chihuahua that has the temperament of a chihuahua. Uh, she hates everybody and everything except for, you know, a handful of people. And then I have Skye. She's a mutt. Uh, she's a big dummy, but just, you know, lovable and sweet and kind. Um, but they make a lot of noise, too. Of course they do. I mean, <laughs> Four little dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got two little kids, two dogs in the house, a husband, and my mom. So we're we're a full house. Meanwhile, I'm hanging out in my single woman life. (laughs) You do have a nice uh, podcast recording atmosphere. I mean, there is not a disturbance, but (laughs) an occasional train. That's the only disturbance a girl can occasionally have, but... It hasn't disturbed me in the first uh, few recordings, so I'm really pleased by that. That's good. I am hiding in um, the dark in my guest bedroom that has no working light right now. Um, Excellent. You just got the mood. Just set the mood. Oh, yeah. The only light is that for my uh, laptop screen. (laughs) For this Dungeness talk that we're having like that. (laughs) My goodness. We are down here. In the dark with the flashlight, you know, are you afraid of it? Like, this is where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is our life right now. This is really the setting to discuss our careers in the dark. Oh, my gosh. Well, I can't hear. wait to hear what you have for me today. Well, you know, I chose probably one of the most positive individuals on the planet to interview for episode three because I'm like, if you can find a problem in this profession, we're all doomed. just just authentic talk because this wonderful wonderful slp that i've known for a few years now um it's just positive just the most positive almost sickeningly positive and you know when people complain about how happy you are you kind of need to like self-evaluate some (laughs) 
Maybe it's us who needs to self-evaluate <laughs> and try to be more positive. Certainly. And I would agree with that because I, you know, I should you not, I think it's amazing how much um, she's authentic. She's sincere. I, I, you know, that, that joy is from the heart because that's the way she moves in, in the world is really authentically. So um, I, I named her Francis because I felt like that was a phenomenal name. You know, it's got <laughs> class. It's got wisdom. It's just, you know, a fly name. So Francis and I sat down. We had an interview. And so let me get into it. Um, I'm just going to stop you right there before before you get started, just to let everyone know, because I don't think we've ever said, but we are using pseudonyms on this show. So if you do want to be interviewed and if you want to tell your story, uh, you don't have to worry about it affecting your, you know, your job, your career, your professional life. Um, we do respect your privacy and we want to share your stories without affecting, you know, your, the real world, your real life. Yes, absolutely. So I interviewed a fellow SLP who actually graduated from the uh, Florida Atlantic University here in lovely, sunny Florida. Um, she's been an SLP for, you know, a few years now and, um, getting a very unbiased and honest answer from her about her experience as an SLP was, was really fun for me. Um, I have already explained that she's probably one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. And I was really so pumped to see like what is your feedback on this process of being miseducated as an SLP and lo and behold you know she had a few things to say um it's ironic right that somebody so positive can actually have some feedback um <laughs> and and it was interesting like you know there was a lot of positivity to her there wasn't she's not great at you know giving about talking badly about things well Maybe Asha. She might say a word or two about Asha. <laughs> <laughs> when you say not great about talking bad about things, that's like the the answer to the Jeopardy question for me of what are you not? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was just, it's just really, it was really cool sitting down talking to her. So she's new to the profession. Um, you know, people would assume that when you're new to something, you're able to be kind of coddled a little bit, supported. Um, she was fortunate enough to transition from where she interned to being employed. You know, that kind of gives you a little bit of additional support. So that's been part of her career. Um, the, the, the work environment she's in, she explained, is just full of patient-centered therapists. I mean, people that really focus on what can we do for the patient. And those are the people that she has that are all around her. And it was basically a scenario of the utopia of speech therapy world because you have access to all these people. Um, <clears throat> the reality, though, still knocked her a bit around. So you're coming in, you're having bosses that are SLPs, you're having coworkers that are really exceptional, and you're still getting knocked up. And it just it was at that moment where I was just like, "Ooh, Lord, this is some shake my head shit that leaves me wondering about the state <laughs> of this country's healthcare, education, and professional environments." Because I'm like, if if you could have the utopia and 
still have things to say. There is something wrong. There is something very wrong. But, you know, let's dive into what, you know, she had to say. Frances has worked in the hospital and outpatient settings since she graduated. She was cross-trained not only to do um, outpatient pediatrics, she was also she's also able to work with adult inpatient rehab. So she's had the glorious experience of kind of crossing to the two big bulk um, sections of population that we work in. Yeah, very diverse population. Absolutely. I mean, outpatient pediatrics looks nothing like inpatient acute rehab. I mean, especially with adults. So it's a really incredible thing. And so when talking to her, there was a little bit of both components being danced around. So when I started in on the questions and asking asking her, like, do you feel like you were well-educated for this profession? Well, <laughs> Pregnant pause. Hmm. First thing that was the collective of that moment was thrown to the wolves. That was the that was the response. And I'm like, wow. Thrown to the wolves, even with that utopia, you know? And so I know her personally. I know she's probably one of the most ambitious SLP students I've ever encountered, CF, all that. I mean, just self-motivated, like you wouldn't believe. And she felt thrown to the wolves. She what did. hope is there for the rest of us? <laughs> it was a significant thing. So her first day, first day, fresh out of school. And yes, like I said, she had been interning there. Still, nonetheless, she had been interning. Um, and it, it, it didn't give you the same feel of being by yourself. 14 patients were on her schedule. <laughs> 14. How much time do we really spend with patients? Let's give it, let's just do some simple math. Maybe 30 well, minutes. I was going to say definitely not an hour unless you're planning on being there uh, for 15 for the day. Boy. So you're not really fully accustomed to working individually, formulating your thoughts without having some time to bounce it off somebody else. Like you've never really been in a position where you are on a time crunch and you have 14 patients on your schedule. You have to learn all 14 patients. You have to do all of their therapy. Then you have to document it and you have to go home in eight hours. Perfect yeah. setup for a first day CF SLP. Clearly. When when do you meet with your supervisor? When when does somebody tell you how things work? When does somebody tell you how to uh, use the computer program to enter your notes? Where to clock well, in? Where the bathroom do, is? Do remember, she was an intern there. So I think some of that scheduling had to do with the fact that she didn't need some of that orientation. Gotcha. However, I do also think it was about just patient need. We need this therapist we need her bad we are desperate you know the pediatric environment especially is like oh my gosh please we need you and so there was a little there's a combination of those two things i think that went into play when it came to her schedule but still i'm like yes that's messed up stuff right there that's the that's not stuff i can i can condone um I know my first day was no walk in, in the park either. That was that was a doozy. And woo, woo, 
my CF supervisor, Lord have mercy, also known as my boss. So um, not a great experience on my first day either. I think I don't, I have not come across an SOP yet that has told me their first day was phenomenal. Um, I'm yeah. waiting for that story. Maybe we can, we can highlight that as one of our positives, but. Um, I think a lot of us are used to just getting thrown right into the mix and there are very few places, few and far between where you really have you know, sufficient training. I have actually worked at places where they provided, you know, up to two weeks of training, maybe even more um, before you were out on your own. But I think a lot of us experience that kind of feeling of just getting thrown to the wolves. You know, you have to get in, get started, go see your patients. You know, you're lucky if you have a chance to review their, their history. And my mindset is always this, this component of, if she felt that way and you feel that way and I have felt that way, how, what is the likelihood that anybody has gone through this profession feeling like they were actually well cared for as a professional? I think those positions are few and far between. I yeah. really from do. Be from beginning to end, somebody having an experience that does not feel like being thrown to the wolves, keep that job, keep that role, <laughs> keep whatever you're doing. Because I, I tell you, it is gold. It is gold. It is the best thing you could ever, you know, have. And I do not doubt that our profession has them. I do not doubt it at all. I know there are beautiful environments out there and this is not about you. And those in beautiful moments, like I am so happy they're there, but we all need that experience. We all should have that experience. And because I speak on that condition that we should, it ha further highlights for me that we do not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I was continuing to talk to Frances, my homie from another mother, she said that, um, <laughs> her biggest miseducated moment for her came with needing to get educated on pediatric dysphagia and feeding, you know, wasn't offered in her college courses. There was literally only one session in her dysphagia course that talked a little bit about it. And so, you know, your full 14 patient day is about pediatric dysphagia and feeding. And you're looking at having no resources, not even like a book you can refer, you, you literally have nothing. And she felt that that was, you know, a huge level of miseducation for her, as well as in the spaces of autism. There's mm -hmm. so much misinformation about the diagnosis. There's so much miseducation when you're dealing with the academic process of it in the traditional methodology of handling pragmatics, language, um, speech, all of that for children with autism. It did not incorporate all the new sciences that are out there post-graduate school. There's not a course that really gives you the understanding of how to meet your patient where they are with their diagnosis. It's more, I know the diagnosis, I'm going to infuse these things that you need into you in the way that I know to see fit. That's what was basically conveyed to me when I was listening to her feelings on it because it was really highlighted. They're always talking about these traditional methods, but when you get out there, that doesn't work. I, 
I'm going to go off on a little tangent here because I was thinking about this this week and I would really love for us at some point in time, you know, to maybe, you know, divert from the format that we're doing right now and kind of touch on some of these really controversial issues that are coming up nowadays, you know, when we're talking about people who are neurodiverse and how our profession may have harmed them and what we need to do to fix it. But that's off topic and for another discussion, (laughs) but it just kind of felt right, right there. I think it makes complete sense for us to sit and spend our time and energy in recognizing that the practice of speech language pathology is as evolving as people. Mm -hmm. And if academia can't keep up with it because people are ever fluid, there is a thing to be said about being called a master's degree speech language pathologist and not therapist. There's something to be said about the progression and active movement of being a regular, consistent scientist within the craft because you're dealing with something that's evolving and changing every single generation, every single um moment every single day like it's just constantly something that progresses and unless there's somebody interested in that science to research it to put out stuff it's going to be sorely lost i mean you see that with the the diagnostic tools that we use you see that with the stimulus items that we use you see it everywhere that the science unfortunately is not keeping up with people as we progress and so of course there's going to be a lot of misstep between what is being taught in terms of foundation and what is being experienced out in the actual practical world, I do think supplemental education is incredibly important, which is what was Francis's solution for her miseducation. I mean, her mindset was, I didn't get this foundational education that was so important. I mean, it's a huge population that she's dealing with are the pediatric feeding and dysphagia patients on top of dealing with autistic children. And there's not found, there's no, you know, college course to look at to go, oh, that helps. Mm-hmm. So what, what does she go out and she did? She consults with other SLPs. She looks at other research. She, I mean, she moves through self-study like a methodical assassin. Just <laughs> killing the game, just chomping up the food, just eating up information. And within the short time that she's practiced, she continues to be just an exceptional practitioner because she really is self-disciplined about her own knowledge. You know, and like I had mentioned in the last podcast about uh, the adult side, that she's done the same thing. She's joined organizations to make it possible for her to get the education that she's needed. That's not every SLP. And I don't know if every SLP feels it's their responsibility to do that for their patients. I, not even just responsibility, but, you know, we're talking about a lot of time spent outside of your work hours on improving, you know, yourself and your field. And, you know, we do go into this understanding that we need CEUs, that we need to, you know, keep up with the science and that we need to you know, look at the evidence and things like that. But there are a lot of us that don't really have that time outside of work. You know, I like, like we've already talked about, I have two small children that are very demanding of my time. It is really difficult for me to find 
time in my day outside of work to then continue to focus on my work and not on my family Mm -hmm. and not having the time, the place, the space within your work setting to kind of pursue the information that you need to really help your patients is not really fair to us either. I have a hard time with the word fair. <laughs> I really do because, you know, I, 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 I don't know what is fair. Um, I know that life is not fair and mm-hmm. I've accepted that. And so some of the circumstances of what we experience are just how life rolls. I'm only speaking on what her personal solution of the game was, which has facilitated her joy, her fulfillment, and a reduction of her imposter syndrome that still sometimes sits there. Um, But we had to digress during the interview because when she was talking to me about imposter syndrome, I was like, does nobody understand that this is literally about what we expect versus what we are and accepting that? I think that keeps being lost in the space of any person experiencing imposter syndrome. It's literally you are setting standards for yourself of what you expected yourself to be. And why would you do that? Why not just accept yourself for who you are and what you know and be comfortable in what you don't know and live in that without, why is that an uncomfortable space? Um, But I, I just think that everybody always is thinking that feeling like they should do more or should be better is a healthy way of living. And I'm like, "Mm -mm, that just promotes stress, anxiety. You know, I mean, it it messes you up. So I I think there are very few people in the world who move through life with your confidence and self-assuredness. I I mean, that could just be my own. (laughs) I am broken. I'm I'm not sitting here walking around going, oh my gosh, guys, be like me. Like, I don't, that's not, that's not, that's not my soul. I know that I have my flaws. I've just accepted that. I've accepted Mm -hmm. that. You know what? I don't know, but I also have the same work ethic as Francis. If I don't know, I'm going to find a solution. I don't care if I have 17 children running around me. There is going to be some, but I'm, I am built from a people being a, a black and Haitian woman that is just bulldoze, rigid, like we are gonna just dig our way to the salvation of what we want to achieve. And so I am not built in the same way as other people next to me. And I do get that in terms of my drive and why I sit inside what I don't know so well. Like I will comfortably say that, I will comfortably say I, mm -mm." and I'm not gonna tell myself I should either because no, I, I can't save myself from myself. I am all I have. (laughs) There is a lot of, a lot of confidence in being able to say like, no, I don't know that, but you know, I'm going to find out, uh, you know, that there's a lot of strength in that. It's to me, it's just the truth. It's just accepting the truth. It's it, I, it honestly is. You don't want to not know. And I so get that, but this is not about wanting. It's about what is the reality of the circumstance. I don't know, but I will know. I will find out. I will figure it out. That's always what they say when Jayco's coming, like they're asking you questions. It's okay. They are constantly telling you, it's okay to say, I don't know, but I will find out. You know what I mean? So we should do that in this role as well. And and that was the same feedback I gave to Francis when we started to digress on things. 
Um, I think some of us might just be embarrassed to say, I don't know, because we think that we should, or that we're supposed to, or that mm -hmm. we're going to be looked down upon for not knowing. And hate to break it to you. We're already looked down upon. I mean, <laughs> when I was doing <laughs> Francis and she was telling me like, she's the master's degree SLP in the room. And, you know, there's spaces in where you're not experiencing positive feedback from other professionals. And we, you know, Casey was an example of that in her explanation of her time with her teacher and the teacher being more superior. And like the profession is built on us not knowing the most in the room for some reason. So it's a constant state. They expect you to say, I don't know, actually. Um, but it's up, it's up to us how we, how we navigate those dis uncomfortable spaces. Um, and it's not a one hit, you know, one formula type of thing. It's just really saying, I've accepted who I am. I am okay with the fact that I don't know this stuff and I'm just going to do my best to navigate it. And if I fail, that's fine. I'll just keep trying because I have to, because I want to be good at this. I want to be good at this. This is something I care about. Um, so yeah, it doesn't help anyone for me to feel bad about myself, considering should, would, all of those things. None of those things help the situation. So I'm a solution seeker. What are we, what are we trying to figure out? How are we moving through this? I understand that you don't know, but what's the next step, you know? And that to me is the very definition of Frances and why her imposter syndrome, although still there, because she said she's the poster child of it. <laughs> and um, probably feels daunted. Um, I, I think ultimately problem solving is what we teach our patients to do during circumstances of difficulty. We should have the same capacity within ourselves and not feel like just because we've approached a problem of I don't know, that we don't have the capacity to cognitively move through it and find the way out. Like we still are capable and successful, strong, 90, you know, 98% women in this profession, I wanna say the last thing was 98%. Sounds about right. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I, I always infinitely consider the capacity of, of this profession to be capable of anything it sets its mind to. Um, and seeing a new problem that it was, did not face you before, but being confident enough to try something and see what happens if it makes you a pathologist, makes you somebody willing to move the science forward. Um, and that happens in new spaces. So I encourage anyone who experiences imposter syndrome to be thrilled by the spaces they don't know and see what they can develop to move the science forward. And, and maybe, maybe hearing that other people feel the same way is going to help us to, you know, get every, get other people into that place where they feel comfortable and confident and saying, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Yeah, absolutely. Because really what else is there? Like once you get to that, what I call rock bottom state of, I am not very aware of what to do right now. <laughs> I've never seen this before. Did you see this before? You call the nurse. You're like, did you look inside this mouth? Do you see what's <laughs> You know, you call you, you, you take a picture and you go to your coworker and you're like, what is this? And how do I fix it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I I have been 
I have done a fees where me and my trainer were both just looking at each other like, what is happening right now? We both walked out of the room. She looked at me. She's like, I don't even know what that was. I, I, I don't even know what just happened. And we Isn't were both shell-shocked. The most phenomenal thing, just the most phenomenal thing is that our profession can do that. So I just look at those moments with like pure pure expectation of this is always supposed to happen because I'm dealing with people and no two people are the same, you know, no two people are the same. And uh, it's really interesting. So as I continue to have a great conversation with my girl, Frances, we did get into the space of like, where are you in, in your dream? Like, you know, what are you doing or are you feeling like you're living your dream in this profession? What is the expectation for it? Like, basically, what do you, are you making this something that fulfills you? And Frances being the amazing, fantastic, happy-go-lucky woman that she is, made it very clear that servicing and helping people was really 100% what makes her feel fulfillment in this career. Like, she enjoys her ability to, to help people like no one else. And she has had several opportunities to do it in other fields and other things. Um, but that's really her wheelhouse. Like she, it was almost like she was born to be um, in service of other people to get them their goals. And her approach to therapy is in that. Like she walks in with this idea of what do you want to work on and how can I help you get there? And the, the stand, if I had an applause thing in here, I would <laughs> laughing because that is to me real centered patient centered care what is your objective i know i can do this assessment i can identify all the areas that you have a problem i absolutely can do that but what is relevant to you with children it's a little bit more difficult because pediatrics you have to habilitate which is the practice of infusing a new um a new skill into mm -hmm. someone what we do in the geriatric world, which is rehabilitate and apply those skills back to a person that's already had them. So in the space of habilitation, you have to convince this child that what you're about to give them is the bee's knees. You got to be like, hey, you know you want this skill, child. You know, come, come with it. Come get this. Come get these skills. You know, we have to do that. Um, so, but still there's the creative process of being able to convince a child that what you're about to do for them is going to benefit their life and they start to engage and participate in that. That's another space where I know that Francis is finding so much joy and happiness in it. Um, and, and that's, that, really, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I yell it. That's okay. No, and that, um, you know, that really does kind of go back to, you know, what we talked about before you know, especially when we're talking about neurodiverse populations, but not just, um, you know, not just with our autistic patients, um, you know, with our patients who stutter, with our patients who have behavior, you know, deficits, with our, you know, that, you know, we're really starting to hear from these groups of people and we need to listen as well as, you know, try to help um, we really need to hear what they're trying to tell us too about how how we should be functioning in our role as therapists. 
Absolutely. I, I can tell you the one thing that has been the resounding success rate for me when it comes to clinical practice is really spending time getting to know my patient and their wants and needs because I understand fully that the science of speech language pathology, which is geared to white people fully, you know, it's a really hard, tough science when it comes to incorporating diversity and inclusion and all of that. It just does not do that. And those are a lot of the spaces I work in in Florida because everyone is diverse. Mm-hmm. I've had to take the intelligence of the science of speech language pathology and revamp it for what is specific to my patient. And that did require getting to know my patient and figuring out, well, what do you want to work on? Because it's clearly not pa 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 da 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 And you know, that it, wagging your tongue at me, not appealing, totally get it. Totally get it. <laughs> what can we do that you want to do? What can I do to get you there? Um, and having your patient take ownership like that is really the best way to get them to be successful is if they buy in to what you're selling. Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, Absolutely. It's not even buying in because they're coming up with it. They're coming up with it. That's their space. And Frances has harnessed that in her career. And that woman is just bouncing around with so much joy. And I'm sure she's, you know, changing lives in ways that are really meaningful to the people that she's touching. That's what I felt um, after talking to her. I really could see that she was starting to feel like I'm effective with this patient care thing now, you know, and I'm like, okay, hey, look at the young ones. Okay. All yeah. Right. I, I wish I could, you're, you're, you're painting a picture for me. I wish I could sit in on one of her sessions and watch her. Absolutely. What she does. Absolutely. It's really when you, when you know that somebody is taking everything that they possibly can in this profession by the horns, because that is what you know, she's done. She's been like, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to grab everything I can from my program, which apparently she was, you know, this exceptional student, um, not from her own stating, from other people that have known her. Um, it Just this exceptional student to now going out into the profession and then just crushing it. Just, <laughs> you know, like I am really respectful of that type of discipline. It, it, it reflects how you, I yell at practice, how I practice, how a lot of our cohort practiced. We were all eager for this profession. And um, I felt it in, in our program. I felt it in the people that I continue to connect to to this day. I mean, I don't know how many cohorts still talk to each other and as frequently as we do. And um, that's, a, that's something I feel really blessed to have. I mean, um, even in, in some of the other aspects, like I'm partnering with with another cohort on creating supplies for um, the minorities that are Haitian, that are immigrant, you know, the area that I work in, it's sorely reduced. That type of collaboration, that support, that desire to push the science forward, man, we had it. We had it. And I see that in Francis as well. Yeah. You're definitely like the glue (laughs) that keeps us together, Ingrid. Oh my gosh, I have nothing but time to call people and go, how are you? You still married? You still got kids? Okay, cool. I'm still single over here. Just, just 
just living for my profession, guys, just living for my profession. And what do I do? Blow up my profession. I really do. I just, I just turn it out. I just do all kinds of stuff in here that just rattles, rattles uh, the cage. And um, it kind of makes me self-analyze. Can I continue to do this? Because I am so highly passionate about patient-centered care and I do not do well with bureaucracy. And it might be getting to the point where I need to break the story down because I find that it's such an interesting topic. I <laughs> I definitely think we're going to have to tell your story here one day. <laughs> but let's let's let him get to know us better. We uh, we tried. Me and Ingrid did some uh, practice runs at this ahead of time. I told one of my personal stories and we found that it just got a little too dark, a little too quick. And so we had to switch gears, but you know, maybe one day we'll release, <laughs> release that episode. Guys, I'm gonna tell you real talk. This girl is still emotional about something that happened like 10 years ago. Like, <laughs> I am. Why, why, why are we still emotional about something that happened 10 years ago? Like, what are we holding on to? What is it? Like, can we woosaw? Can we work our way out? What? I, I cannot, I cannot let go. I can hold a grudge and I can hold on to it real tight. Mm-mm, this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. I'm not about that life at all. It, once it's done, it's done. So I'm very even keel. But this girl, this woman, I mean, I felt her turning red and I'm not even in the room. Yeah. Yeah. It was, there was, there was some yelling. So <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, hold off on my stories until I can, uh, breathe a little bit and we all know Ayala can curse because that was the last episode that one <gasps> hey I was just reading Cassie's words I don't know what you're talking about just saying the talent in which you executed that woman's words was like a <laughs> professional just straight up with those words <laughs> like wow okay we saying f but with that kind of emphasis that kind of energy, we're on that energy okay all right cool 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 cool, cool. I- I'm a New Yorker it's just second nature <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're a New Yorker? How did I not know this? I just what thought you were mean? reading. I did not know. <laughs> you had to know. I had no idea. I literally just thought you were Jewish as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Jewish and from New York. It's a double whammy. Oh my gosh. That is so intense. And then, I, oh my gosh, that is re- that is really surprising to me that I'm finding this out right now. <laughs> I don't know how you didn't know that. Never. I. But now, like, as I listen to your cadence, maybe I should have, but it's so subtle now. Oh, yeah. I definitely got rid of the accent. It was it was bad, too. I'm for, you know, I'm from Staten Island, so I had a, a hardcore Staten Island accent. Oh, my gosh. Look at oh, the yeah. way you assimilated to the newscaster status. Okay. Well done. Bravo. Okay. Let me get my clap on. Hello. Yeah. Lots of uh, drama and diction classes prior to... Uh, my speech classes. Oh, mm. look at you studying up for the profession. <laughs> Just kind of blended right into each other. Worked out real well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a beautiful and meant to be dynamic. Well, like Miss Ayala said earlier in our show, I really want to highlight the support of anyone who's listening is incredibly important to keep us going and keep us in a space where we are touching and affecting people, which is the goal of this, is to get other people out there understanding what 
is this profession that is the speech language pathologist and, you know, subscribing, leaving reviews, actually giving us feedback is something we really deeply would appreciate and hope to have the opportunity to engage you more than just these wonderful interviews, but to actually have you, you know, kind of dialogue with us about some of these great stories. So I leave you with that. Miss Ayala, any Yes, words? please, please, please like, subscribe, give us a rating. We'd love to hear your feedback. We love to get some interviews with some of you if you really want to share your stories. And, and most of all, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Absolutely. You guys have a good night. Thank you so good much. Night. Or good day, depending on when you're, when you're, you know, listening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will see you next time. All righty. Bye. Bye.